My name is Josh Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us this morning, I just want to give you a special shout out. We're really glad that you're here, and I would love to meet you after the service and just get to hear a little bit of your story. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, that is where we are going to be this morning. So one of the primary objections that I hear to Christianity is that it's too exclusive. It's too exclusive. You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And it's an unspoken rule in our society that you don't tell other people that their religion is wrong, that you don't tell other people that their belief system is wrong. And one of the reasons for that is that our society is pluralistic. That word simply means that our society is made up of many different cultures and kinds of people and different beliefs. So you have all kinds of different beliefs represented just in the city of Charlottesville. And so the reasoning goes, hey, we live in a diverse, pluralistic society, and so Christians can't go around saying that their way is the only way, that you can't go around saying that Jesus is the only way to God. That might have been okay in the 1950s when things were a little more homogenous, but not today. We're too diverse. It's too pluralistic. You've got to change your tune. But what's interesting is that that's actually not a new objection to Christianity. In fact, that objection to Christianity was made all the way back in Acts chapter 4. Because you see, Christianity was born in a very pluralistic society. The Roman Empire was massively pluralistic, more pluralistic even than our society today. And from the very beginning, proclaiming the exclusivity of Jesus Christ was offensive. It was offensive to people in the first century, just like it's offensive to many of us today. And what we're going to find in Acts chapter 4 is that Peter and John are actually going to be arrested and interrogated for proclaiming the exclusivity of Christ, for saying that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And by looking at Peter and John's interrogation, we're going to learn how the Bible answers two major objections to exclusivity, and then we're going to learn how we can live with boldness in the midst of a culture that is often antagonistic to our beliefs. Okay, so we're going to learn how the Bible deals with two, op two uh, objections to exclusivity and then how we can live with boldness in the midst of a culture that is often antagonistic to what we believe. So what I'm going to do is walk through chapter 4 and I'm going to draw those three things out, okay? So look at verse 1 with me. It says this, And as they, so that's Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of just the men came to about 5,000. So this scene occurs just after Peter and John had healed a paralyzed man as they were walking into the temple. So Peter and John are walking into the temple. They see this man that's been paralyzed. He asks them for money, and they say, we don't have any money to give you, but we do have something to give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, and he does. Well, this man is, is exuberant. He's joyful. He's singing. He's jumping. He's leaping, and this causes a crowd to form, as would probably happen today if that happened in our service, right? So a crowd forms, and Peter takes that opportunity to interpret the miracle and proclaim the resurrection of Christ, and he calls the crowd to repent and believe. Well, as that's happening, a new crew comes onto the scene. You read it in the text. It says it's the priests, the captain of the temple, which is like the, the, the police of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, and they were greatly annoyed that Peter and John were preaching, and so they arrested them. The phrase literally means laid hands on them. So they, they come upon them, they hear what they're saying, and they're irate, they're furious, and so they lay hands on them, and they throw them in prison to make them stop preaching. And to understand why this group was so upset, you have to understand a little bit about them. So the high priests and the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees were all a part of a group called the Sadducees, okay? They were all part of the Sadducee party. And the Sadducees were the ruling class of wealthy aristocrats in Jerusalem. The way that they maintained their power was that they were in bed with the Roman government, okay? So the Roman government ruled over thousands and thousands of people in hundreds of different cultures. And so they established an official religious policy that said this, every god is equally valid as long as it bows to the power of Caesar. 
So that was the official Roman position. The Roman government was officially pluralistic. They said, every god is, is the same. Everybody can worship what they want to worship as long as you all bow to Caesar. And so what they said to the Sadducees was, hey, we will let you guys be in charge of Jerusalem if you will make sure that policy is upheld. So all of the Sadducees' power and cultural influence and political might and money and wealth came from being in bed with the Romans who had the military strength. You track it with me? So the Sadducees don't want the apostles preaching Jesus because Jesus was a threat to them. Jesus was a threat to their power. That's why they executed Jesus in the first place because Jesus showed up and Jesus was not afraid of the Roman government and he did not bow to Caesar and he said, look, there are not many ways to God. There is one way and I'm him. And the Sadducees refused to accept that and so they crucified Jesus and they thought, great, that's over with. Let's wash our hands and move on. They thought if we cut off the head of the serpent, then this movement will go away. But unfortunately, the serpent came back to life and multiplied a bunch of preachers. So they come into, they're like, what is going on in the temple? There's this huge crowd, and here's Peter and John proclaiming not only that, man, Jesus is the one and only way to God, but hey, the, the Sadducees crucified Jesus, and then God raised him from the dead. So you can understand why the Sadducees are not real thrilled with Peter and John convincing a bunch of people to follow this new religious system. So they lay hands on them and they throw them in prison to inter interrogate them the next day. This is really the first instance of persecution that the, that the church faces. But the, the author of Acts, Luke, wants you to understand that even though persecution is starting to begin, it is not hindering the progress of the word of God. If you look at verse 4, it says that not, not just a few people, but 5,000 just men believed and were added to the church that day. So that probably means heads of household. So we're talking thousands of people who saw this miracle, who heard the gospel, and repented and became followers of Jesus. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So the group that gathered together is called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 71 men who possessed most of the political, cultural, and religious power in Jerusalem. From now on, I'll just call this group the council, okay? So 71 very influential, powerful people. That's why Luke goes out of his way to start telling you names. It's sort of like he's name dropping, okay? There's, there's Annas, the high priest. There's Caiaphas, who was a former high priest. And John and Alexander, who were next in line to be high priests. So there's some high-powered, very, very powerful people in this council. These are the cultural elites of that time. It would be like sitting in front of Bernie Sanders, Ellen DeGeneres, LeBron James, Taylor Swift, and like 60 other really influential people in our culture. Okay, this is a very influential, very powerful group. They had a lot of followers on social media, okay? Like what they said made a difference. They, if they said your life is forfeit, your life is forfeit, right? If they want to put you out of the temple, if they want to black, blacklist you and tell everybody don't deal with them, they're bigoted or they're wrong, they could do it, okay? That is who this council is. And it's even more intimidating if you look at verse 7. You see what it says there? It said that they set them in their midst. That meant that the 71 men formed a giant semicircle, and then they had Peter and John stand in the middle of it. And the whole point of that posture was to intimidate you with the authority of this council. You were literally in the middle of enemies on almost every side. And they were trying to intimidate Peter and John with the authority that they possessed. And they cut right to the chase in this verse. They're not friendly. They cut right to the chase. And they say, by what power did you do this? You could paraphrase that question this way. What gives you the right to cause such a disturbance? Who do you think you are? This council is not happy with Peter and John. And to understand how breathtakingly bold Peter's response is, you have to remember who Peter and John were. They were just peasants. They were just minding their own business, fishermen in Galilee. They didn't have an education. They didn't have political power. It would be like you standing in front of a, a council of all the political and cultural elites of the United States. That's what it's like for Peter and John. They have, they have seen the Sanhedrin from a distance their whole lives, and now they're standing in front of them, and the Sanhedrin is mad. Keep that in mind as you listen to how Peter responds. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today 
concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the most important stone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Man, just let that sit for a minute. Man, imagine the boldness and courage and audacity of Peter to respond to the council this way. He wasn't disrespectful. I mean, if you look at how he started, he says rulers of the people and elders. So that was kind of a polite way to address them. But Peter did not pull any punches. He said, let it be known that this lame man was healed by the power of Jesus Christ, the man that you crucified, but God raised from the dead. And then in verse 12, he summarizes his whole speech and says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And in saying that, Peter wasn't innovating. He wasn't saying something new. He was simply repeating Jesus' own words in John 14, 6, where Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in front of a powerful political and cultural council whose job was to maintain religious pluralism, Peter put a stake in the ground and said, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So the council was blown away by Peter's response. This is not what they expected from this guy from Galilee who had had no education. Right? They knew that neither Peter nor John had been trained officially by a rabbi. They hadn't gone to seminary. They, didn't, they weren't college men. They were just kind of ordinary working guys. So at first they were blown away by their response. And then they realized, oh, these guys were with Jesus. And they remembered that this same thing was true of Jesus. You see, Jesus had no formal theological education, but he spoke with an incredible amount of authority and an incredible amount of boldness to the powers that be. And they thought, okay, this guy's been with Jesus. And they're frustrated and they want to do something, but they can't. Because here's the lame guy who's been healed, who was lame for 40 years, just standing next to him, grinning like an idiot, right? He's like, hey guys, you want to go for a run? I can skip now. This is amazing, right? Like, what are they supposed to do? They're mad at Peter and John. They don't believe that Jesus was the one that healed him. And yet he, here's the man who was healed, standing right next to him. So they don't know what to do. So they send Peter and John, the healed man, out. They say, hey, you, you guys leave. We're going to confer. I mean, you have to imagine that, man, you have to imagine that the council was incensed. Verse 16, they said, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they couldn't deny that this miracle had taken place, but they also refused to accept that it had been done through Jesus. So they're stuck. They have a dilemma. And so they decide, we're going to try to limit the spread of this message by threatening them. We're going to threaten their lives so that they will stop proclaiming the message. And it's worth asking at this point, how did Luke know what they said? Have you ever thought about that? Like, it's a, it's a secret council. Like, how Luke is it wasn't there. How did Luke know what they said in the secret council? Well, it's probably because... The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was a high-ranking Jew based in Jerusalem. And Paul and Luke were traveling companions. And so it's likely that Paul was at this council. And if Paul wasn't at this council, we know for a fact that Paul's mentor, a man named Gamaliel, was a part of this council. We learned that in Acts chapter 5. So either Paul was there and he heard it, or Gamaliel, Paul's mentor, was there and he came and told Paul what had been said. So one way or another, that's probably how Luke found out what was said in this secret council. Isn't it kind of cool when you figure out how the Bible connects together? I think that's awesome. Okay, so a little side note there. All right, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Again, man, Peter's boldness, his pluck, his audacity, his courage is amazing. He says, I'm called by God to proclaim this message, and I'm going to obey him rather than you. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I'm sure the council wanted to put them to death the very moment that Peter said, you know what, we're going to do what we're going to do, whether you tell us to or not. I'm sure they're incensed, but what are they going to do? There's a massive crowd of people who've just watched them miraculously heal someone. If they throw them in prison, if they try to kill them, they're going to have a riot on their hands. And so they threaten them further, probably saying, hey, you know what we can do, don't you? You know that we can put you out of the temple. We can make your life very, very difficult. We're warning you, do not proclaim this Jesus anymore. And then they let them go. Man, and just like that, two uneducated men boldly declared the exclusivity of Jesus to an antagonistic council whose entire job was to maintain the Roman position of pluralism. Man, and like I said earlier, by looking at Peter and John's interrogation, we learn the Bible's answer to two major objections to exclusivity and how we can live with boldness like they did in the midst of an often antagonistic culture. So let's start with the first objection. Here's number one. Objection number one. Claiming that Jesus is the only way is arrogant. Claiming that Jesus is the only way is arrogant. Many people say, if you think Jesus is the only way to salvation, you must think that you are smarter than everyone else. That you see things that other people don't see. Or you must think that you are better than everyone else morally. You must think that you're the kind of person that God loves, and so you feel confident to say Jesus is the only way. It is arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way. And those are fair questions to ask. Those are really fair questions to ask. You may have those questions. You may have friends or family members that ask those questions. So let's just, let's dig into those and ask those questions. Is that what Peter is saying? Number one, is Peter claiming to be smarter than everyone else? Well, no. In fact, the text says kind of the opposite. Verse 13 says that he and John were common, uneducated men, which mean, means they didn't have a formal theological education and if you read the Gospels, you realize that Peter is not the sharpest crayon in the box. Okay? He's just not. I mean, he's, very, he's, he's often very good-intentioned, but he just blurts things out. He's not the most nuanced. And what's hilarious is that Luke wrote this, and Luke and Peter knew each other. So do you think Peter was like, come on, man, that's unnecessary. Right? Like, right? So Peter's not saying that he's smarter than the council. In fact, he's probably like, look, I didn't study for years with a rabbi. I don't understand all your detailed philosophical conversations. Peter's not claiming to be smarter. And then in verse 20, he, his response is, is just, look, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. He's not claiming to be smarter. Peter was simply living out the implications of the historical reality that interrupted his life. Peter is simply living out the implications of the historical reality that interrupted his life. He never imagined that he'd be standing in front of the Sanhedrin testifying that the Messiah had come. This was not his life plan. He was minding his own business as a fisherman in Galilee, just trying to scratch together a living, when Jesus showed up. And Jesus turned everything upside down. Jesus said, come and follow me. And I'm not sure Peter knew in that moment what he was getting into. But he did. And he kept following Jesus. And as he did, he, he just saw the most extraordinary things. He watched Jesus heal the sick. He saw Jesus raise people from the dead. He was in the boat when Jesus rebuked weather. He saw Jesus be crucified, saw him die, saw him be put into a grave, and then three days later, saw him resurrected. If, if, Peter, if Peter would have just melted back into his life in Galilee, things would have gone much easier for him. Have you ever thought about that? He could have just sort of dissolved back into his old life, picked up fishing, and like life would have been much more comfortable. He probably would have lived longer. His life would have been less you know, stressful. But the reason he didn't was because after he watched Jesus die, Jesus came and spent time with him. Peter didn't see Jesus in a dream. Peter didn't see Jesus in a hallucination. Peter saw Jesus across the lunch table. He talked with him. 
He saw him. He put his hands in his scars and in his side. The Bible records 10 distinct appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, and none of them read like hallucinations. All of them read like very objective historical interactions. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that more than 500 people saw Jesus after his resurrection. Look, Peter probably wanted to go back to Galilee, but he couldn't because the Messiah had interrupted his life. So Peter says, look, guys, I'm not smarter than you. I'm not saying I've got this whole thing figured out. I'm just responding to the historical reality that has disrupted my life plan. So no, Peter is not claiming to be smarter than everyone else. And when Christians say that Jesus is the only way, we're not saying that we're smarter than everyone else. We're just saying, look, we believe this historically happened. We've looked at the evidence of the resurrection, and we think this is the, the, this is the most compelling conclusion. And so we're going to follow him. Number two, is Peter claiming to be morally superior to everyone else? Is he saying, hey, I'm really good. God loves me and likes me more than he likes you people, so that's why Jesus is the only way. No, again. I mean, remember back in chapter 3, after Peter and John healed the lame man? Do you remember what he said in verse 12? He said, men of Israel, why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? That word piety just means holiness or moral goodness or righteousness. And Peter says, why are you looking at us like we did this? It wasn't my power. It wasn't my moral goodness that made this man walk. In fact, Peter's probably still a little embarrassed about denying Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. And there's just maybe a month earlier, 40 days earlier. In verses 9 and 10, when Peter responded to the council, he said, let it be known it was the power of Jesus that did this, not me. What Jesus taught and what Peter understood was that God's salvation is a gift of grace. It's something that anyone can receive regardless of their moral record. That was the whole point of the lame man being healed. You realize that? Here's a man who has no power to heal himself. He cannot get up and walk into the temple, which represents God's presence. And along comes Peter, and in the power of Jesus' name, this man all of a sudden has strength in his legs. And for the very first time in his life, he can walk into the temple and experience the presence of God. Friends, that is a picture of salvation. Every one of us is born crippled spiritually. We can't get up and walk into God's presence. But through faith in Christ, we can be healed like this man was healed. This man was not healed because he had a perfect moral record. He wasn't healed because he said his prayers outside the temple for 40 years. He was healed in the name of Jesus. The whole point of the Christian message is that if you are a Christian, you're admitting that you're not morally better than everyone else. In fact, you're admitting that you're probably morally worse than most other people, which is why you need a Savior who is gracious. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. Peter isn't claiming to be morally superior. He's claiming that salvation is a gift you receive, not a trophy you earn. Peter is claiming that salvation is a gift you receive, not a trophy you earn. A true Christian who really understands the gospel should be one of the most humble people on the planet. Because if you believe the gospel, this is what you're admitting to. I was so bad that the Son of God had to die for me. That's what you're admitting. How in the world could someone be arrogant and think they're better off morally than someone else? Who believes that? So no, Christians are not claiming to be morally superior to anyone else when we say that Jesus is the only way. Third, is it arrogant to say Jesus is the only way when there are other religions in the world? Is it arrogant to say Jesus is the only way when there are other religions in the world? And I think personally this is probably the objection that's underneath all the other objections. Because all of us know people, we have friends, maybe family members, who believe differently than, than we do if you're a Christian, right? You have... Maybe you have a Muslim neighbor or a Hindu neighbor or a, a secularist neighbor or someone who's agnostic or, you know, you have somebody that's universalist in your family. And so we interact with these people and we like these people and we care about them and it just feels weird to say, I'm right and you're wrong. It, it feels, it, it just doesn't feel right. So this is the question I think that's really underneath all of it. So let's take a second to look at this. Um, this sentiment is often expressed using a rather famous parable from India about an elephant, okay? It goes like this. Three blind men fall into a pit with an elephant. 
The first blind man uh, feels the elephant's nose and says, it's a snake. The second blind man feels the elephant's tusk and says, no, it's a spear. The third blind man feels the elephant's side and says, no, no, it's a wall. The moral of the parable is that none of the three blind men see the whole picture of the elephant. But if they were humble enough to listen to one another with their combined knowledge, they would have a better picture of the whole. So, as the parable goes, it is with religions of the world. No religion or belief system has the complete picture of God. But if we're humble enough to learn from one another, then we can have a larger picture of the elephant. Well, that sounds like a pretty convincing parable at first, right? And it's told in India a lot because India is one of the most pluralistic places on the planet. But it actually has two major flaws. And the person that, that really kind of uh, drew this out was a guy named Leslie Newbegin. So Leslie Newbegin was a Christian missionary in India for 35 years. And he heard this parable a lot. And at first he didn't know how to respond to it. And so finally it dawned on him, oh wait, there are like two big problems here. Here's the first flaw. Who's the only person in that parable who sees the whole elephant? Who's the only one that's not blind? It's the narrator. Right? The only person that really understands God is the person telling the parable. Do you, do you start to sense the hypocrisy in that? The whole point of the parable is to say, you shouldn't tell other people what God is like. All the while, that person is telling everybody else what God is like. They're saying, well, you don't really understand. You don't have the whole picture. You need to learn from everyone else. So the first fall in the parable is it's inherently hypocritical. The person who is telling the parable is doing the very thing that they're telling everyone else you're not allowed to do, acting like you have the right view of God. That's the first fall. Here's the second fall of the parable. What if the elephant started talking? What if the elephant was like, hey, I'm an elephant. I'm not a snake, a spear, or a wall. That is functionally what Christians believe. We believe that God took on flesh in Jesus Christ and said, I'm God, this is what I'm like. You see, to believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, I don't think is arrogant. You might call it gullible, you might not find it convincing, but it's not arrogant, it's just simply responding to historical evidence. But telling everyone else that they're not allowed to have exclusive beliefs when you have exclusive beliefs, that's hypocritical. So underneath it all, when we say, ooh, I just don't like to tell other people that they're right and wrong, understand everyone draws a line. Everyone draws a line. And you might say, I don't draw a line. Well, so I've heard people say, I just think all good people from every religion go to heaven. And that seems very accepting. But who have you just excluded when you say that? Excluded bad people, right? And who gets to decide who's a good person and who's a bad person? You probably. And so, you know, sure, you'd, you'd put, you know, racists and, and rapists and child molesters and all very, you know. But then, okay, Depending on your viewpoint, maybe you put people who are sexually immoral in that category as bad people. Or maybe if you're from the other persuasion, you put people who judge people for their sexual choices in that category. Like regardless of what your list is, you've got a list of some people that get in and some people that don't get in. And when you choose the all good people go to heaven, you functionally exclude anyone that's ever had a moral failure. You exclude about 60% of the heroes of the Bible. Like Moses didn't get in. David's definitely not getting in. Okay, like you, you basically exclude the whole point of the scriptures is that, man, salvation is not a trophy you earn. It's a gift of grace. Or maybe you say, hey, I'm not, this is why I'm not religious because religions are always excluding people. I'm just not religious, okay? I'm, I'm just a secular person. I don't exclude anybody. That's not really true. We all have standards, right? I mean, UVA prides itself on being a very inclusive, affirming place, doesn't it? But imagine I got a big old truck with two Make America Great Again flags in the back of it, and I started driving around with loud music down around ground. You can see how inclusive that place is. It's just true. You know it. We all have standards. Everybody draws a line in the sand somewhere. So I know we don't like it. I know we don't like to be like, I'm right and you're wrong, but you're functionally doing it. Every single person is. So is it arrogant to say that, that Jesus is the only way? No, I don't think it's arrogant. I think, honestly, we all make choices about what is in and what is out. And what's wonderful about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it's so distinct from every other, every other qualification. Because it teaches that our acceptance with God doesn't depend 
on your moral record, your education, your race, or your political viewpoint. Rather, God gives salvation as a gift to all who repent and believe, regardless of your background. I love how Pastor Tim Keller says it. All religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. All religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. Which brings us to objection number two. Number two, religion is a matter of personal preference. Religion is a matter of personal preference. Right? Many people say, you ought to be free to choose whatever religion works for you. This was kind of the Sadducee's position. Right? They said, look, just it's fine if you want to worship Jesus privately. Just don't tell anybody about it. Peter and John didn't get in trouble for having a quiet time. They got in trouble for proclaiming the gospel publicly. The Sadducees didn't care if they were a little group of people over in a house by themselves. What frustrated them was when they started telling the people and convincing others that Jesus is the only way. You see, oftentimes in our society, this is how we function. We think of religion as just sort of a personal preference. So, man, you prefer Chipotle, I prefer Moe's, right? You like coffee, I like tea. Whatever works for you is fine as long as it works for you. That's how our culture thinks about religion. But is that the right way to think about religion? Well, first, okay, nerd out with me for like four minutes, okay? Put the nerd hats on, come join me in my turf, okay? All right, we need to realize that that view of religion is extraordinarily European. It's extraordinarily European. The father of modern Western philosophy is a guy named Immanuel Kant. All right, Immanuel Kant. And Kant taught, and he just taught this. He didn't prove this. This is just, his, this is just what he thought. That religion was subjective, not objective. So his idea was that religion could be subjectively helpful in your life. It might encourage you or make you feel better, but it wasn't actually objectively true. And as a result, everybody was just, you could just do whatever you wanted. You could, if it helped you, great. If yoga helps you, do yoga. If coming to church helps you, come to church. If going for a hike on Sunday mornings helps you, great, go for a hike. Because the point is not that any of it is really true or not true. The point is that it's subjectively helpful for you. And that's what most people in our society believe, which is why most people don't get upset with you if you believe in Jesus, right? Oh, that's great for you, right? They just don't want you telling other people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But is Kant right? Is that the correct way to think about religion? Is biblical Christianity just simply subjective? Is it just a psychological trick to help you in your time of emotional need? No. I mean, think about the lame man in this text. This lame man needed real, objective healing, not some psychological trick to help him feel encouraged. He didn't need a coffee mug with Jeremiah 29.11 on it. He needed his limbs to be restored. Those are two very different things. I'm not saying, like, if you have a coffee... I just offended six people here because the, the coffee mug's great. It's, I, and scripture should encourage us. But hear me, Christianity is only subjectively helpful if it is objectively true. Do you understand that? Christianity is only subjectively helpful in your life if it is objectively true. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus Christ was not objectively raised from the dead, then we of all people are most to be pitied. He said, then you're still in your sins. Then you haven't been saved. Then you have no hope in the future. Paul was not all about subjective, subjective hell, but it's not really real. He's like, no, no, no. Only if it's really real, only if it's objectively true, is it subjectively helpful. And it's also important to realize that this is a massively European way to think about religion. And most people in the world don't agree with Kant. They don't agree that values and religious beliefs are just sort of subjective feelings, things that aren't real. Um, Lamain Sanaa taught at Yale until he passed away earlier this year. And Dr. Sanaa was born in Gambia, Africa. And he wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity that addressed this very issue. Dr. Sana argued that Christianity is more open to cultural difference than any other religion. And he illustrated it this way. He said, to be African is to believe that the world is filled with spirits. Africans have always believed the world is filled with good spirits and evil spirits. It's a supernatural place. And yet the problem has been superstition. The problem has been fear. What do we do about the evil spirits? How do we overcome them? If I send an African off to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, they're going to come back European. 
because they're going to be told, oh, everything has a scientific explanation. The people of Harvard and Yale are also going to say, we love multiculturalism. Wear your African dress and eat your African food, but we're going to destroy your Africanness. Because we're going to tell you that everything has a scientific explanation. But Christianity comes along and it says it respects my Africanness. It lets me stay African. Because it says, yes, there are evil spirits and good spirits. But Jesus Christ has overcome the evil spirits. And through him, you don't have to be afraid anymore. In the end, it renews my Africanness. Admittedly, as a Christian, I'm not the same as I was as an animist, but I'm closer to being an African. Africans recognize that if I become a secularist, a Westerner, I will be stepping away from being African. But if I become a Christian, I am not. Friends, we have to understand that when we project religion as a subjective helpful thing but not objectively true upon the world, we are inadvertently committing cultural imperialism. You know what we're saying? Oh, you silly Africans. You silly Asians. You just, you just aren't as insightful as we are. Come to the West. We'll put you in our schools and we'll convince you of the right way from Dr. Sage Immanuel Kant. It is one of the most arrogant things you can say culturally to tell the other billions of people in the world that only we in the West from, you know, Northern Europe and Great Britain and parts of the U.S., we're the ones with all the real knowledge. We're the ones that really understand how the world works and y'all just need to get on our page. Dr. Sanaa understood that. He said, look, I send any of my Africans off to Yale and they're going to be told, oh, we love multiculturalism. Yeah, you, you know, wear your African clothes. That's great, but we're going to change you. But Christianity doesn't do that. So is religion simply a personal preference? No. When Peter responded to the council, do you see what he said? He said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Those are not subjective words. Those are objective evidence words. Objective evidence words. Peter and John were transformed by an objective Savior. And they were standing there because they had witnessed an objective resurrection. It wasn't simply helpful to them emotionally. They really believed that it happened, and that's the testimony of the church today. We don't, I don't get up here and say, hey, I hope this is helpful for you. I say, no, this is true, and if it's true, then it's helpful. But if it's not true, it's not helpful. That's objection number two. And I hope dialoguing about this is, is, has been helpful, has been helpful to you. I hope it helps you understand that, man, we need to think deeply about these things, but there's an important question that I haven't addressed yet, and it's this. How do we live with boldness in the midst of a, of a culture that disagrees with everything that I just said? Right? How do we model our lives like Peter did, where he stood up in front of a withering council of critics and enemies and remained bold? That's the last thing that we're going to learn. Number three, how to live with boldness in our culture. Man, Peter and John were called to the carpet by a council of cultural elites for holding exclusive beliefs about Jesus. That's what happened. That's what we read. And it reminds me of an exchange between Senator Bernie Sanders and Russell Vought, an evangelical Christian who was nominated to serve as the deputy White House budget director. So during the exchange, Sanders wasn't concerned with Vought's qualifications to serve. Instead, he focused on Vought's beliefs in the exclusivity of Christ. This was on the Senate floor. After attacking Vout several times, Sanders said, this quote, this nominee is not someone who this country is supposed to be about. And later released a press clipping that characterized Vout as racist and bigoted. All Vout did was claim orthodox Christian beliefs about the exclusivity of Christ. He did it gently. He did it very in a nuanced manner. He, he said that man, God created every single person in the image of God, and they are worthy of respect. And Bernie Sanders responded by saying, you're a racist, and you're bigoted, and that's not what this country is supposed to be about. Now, most of us haven't faced that kind of criticism on that kind of level in front of that kind of audience. But increasingly, our society deems what the Bible teaches to be unacceptable, to be hateful, and to be bigoted. So here's the question. How do we live with boldness in the same way that Peter and John lived with boldness? Why were Peter and John so bold in the face of withering pressure? 
Here it is. Ready? Because they feared God more than they feared men. Because they feared God more than they feared men. That is the secret. If you're going to live boldly in a culture that is antagonistic to the Bible, you have to fear God more than you fear any cultural repercussions. You see that in how Peter responded. He said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter had such a high view of God's holiness, his power, and his transcendence that he didn't crumble under cultural pressure, even the intense cultural pressure of this council. One reason why so many American Christians have a hard time being bold in our culture is that we have a deficient understanding of who God is. The Bible teaches that God is both imminent and transcendent. Imminent means God is close to us, he loves us, he cares for us. Transcendent means that he's very different from us, that he's high and exalted. The Bible teaches that, that is, both of those are true of God. But the American church has overemphasized God's imminence and neglected God's transcendence. So many of us lack a healthy biblical fear of God. We lack a holy reverence for his name. How do I mean? Well, consider the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Okay, again, if you have a, I'm not mad at you. That's not, you know, you can wear your shirt. I'm just saying Christians in the first century would never have thought of Jesus that way. They, they would never have thought of Jesus that way. They would say, yes, man, God is close to you. He is. He loves you. He knows every hair on your head. He has every one of your tears in a bottle, and he loves to hear you pray. He is your father, and Jesus prayed to him as Abba, Father, Dad. Yes, Jesus, or yes, God is close but make no mistake, friends, God is not like you, and you are not like God, because there is none like him. God is not like you, and you are not like God. God is the alpha and the omega. He declares the end from the beginning. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. His ways are higher than your ways, and his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He dwells in unapproachable light, and he is a consuming fire. When he came down on Mount Sinai, it was shrouded in clouds and flame and strikes of lightning and bolts of thunder and and rocks came flying off the mountain at the presence of the Lord. And the Israelites said, we can go no further or we will die. He laid the cornerstone of the earth and he called the morning stars together. He shut the sea in with doors and told it it should go no further. He said, see, this is where you will stay and you will come no further. He walks in the recesses of the deep and has comprehended the vastness of the stars. If you've ever sat and looked at the stars at night and thought, I feel so small, God has never felt that way. When God looks at the stars, he says, they're small. God's throne is in heaven and his footstool is the earth. He commands the clouds to rain and they rain. He sends lightning bolts to do his bidding and they go. He possesses incomprehensible authority and power. There is no one who has ever and no one who will ever threaten him. He has no rival. He has no equal. His will will be done and he is not intimidated by our culture. Hear me, friends. God loves you, but God is not like you. Because there is none like him. And I don't know all of your stories this morning, but I know one thing about you. The moment that you die, you're going to open your eyes and you're going to see that God. And do you know what you're going to do? You're going to give an account for your life before that God, before the God who dwells in unapproachable light and who is a consuming fire and who the Israelites were afraid to even approach the mountain that his presence dwelt on. And every one of us is going to give an account of our lives to that God. That is what Peter and John understood. So when they stood before this council of elites and they were threatened and their lives were in danger, they said, look, we're going to do what God called us to do, not what you called us to do, because in the end, we're not going to stand before you. We're going to stand before him. Friends, when you open your eyes after you pass, you know who you're not going to see? You're not going to see your professor. 
You're not going to see your friends. You're not going to see your family members. You're not going to see Taylor Swift or LeBron James or Bernie Sanders or anybody else with all their opinions about what is right and wrong. You are going to see God. And what we need to do is we need to orient our lives around that truth. If that's where we know we're ending up, we better reorient our lives around that. Because when you do, you will be filled with a boldness that cannot be quenched. Because you'll say, look, throw your worst at me. I have the approval of the one and only Almighty. The one who organized the stars and holds the universe together by the word of his power, adopted me into his family, says he's going to provide for me, and he's going to bring me into his presence. Do your worst. When you fear God, You don't have to fear men. You will live with boldness in our culture when you fear God more than you fear people. Friends, that is the secret. What is your view of God? Is it small? Does he fit in a box? Or is it biblical? And does it make you uncomfortable? Because the true God does not fit in a box and the true God does not fit in your quiet time and the true God listens to no one. The true God is the God of the scriptures. As we close, man, I want to draw your attention to an important implication of this text. If it's true that salvation is only found in Jesus, then we must devote ourselves to proclaiming the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations of the If it's true, if what I've said is true, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, it cannot be business as usual. The Joshua Project estimates that there are 2.6 billion people in the world, 2.6 billion, who have little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as a result, at this point in time, have no hope of being saved. Forget rejecting the gospel. They've never heard of Jesus. They don't know who he is. Friends, that's not okay. That is not okay. If we believe what we believe, Center Church, if we say, I believe the Bible is God's word, we must be urgently devoted to the sake of the nations. Your life has to change. It's why we planted this church. It's why we send people out to Nicaragua, why we're sending people out to other nations of the earth this summer. It's why my friends, Clint and Amanda, live in one of the remote place, most remote places in the world. They live in the mountains of Central Asia. They are 40 hours by car and plane from their closest friends and family. And they have three young kids. I mean, young kids. Why are they there? Because every day, Clint and Amanda go out into the villages and they look into the eyes of people who have no hope of being saved except that someone were to go to them. There are people in that area of Central Asia who have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ and Clint and Amanda are not okay with that. Friends, if we believe what we believe, we cannot be okay with that either. We can't just sit here in our ivory tower and defend exclusivity and show the call, we, you know, you're wrong and then not do anything about it. We have to go. It's the reason we talk so much about sharing the gospel here. It probably makes you uncomfortable. It's why we're sending out short-term mission trips this summer that I want you to consider going on. And it's why this summer we're launching a new initiative called City Project for college students. Right now, if you're a college student, whether you are part of our ministry or you're part of another on-grounds fellowship, I need you to lock in with me, okay? Two minutes. This is for you. City Project is an eight-week intensive discipleship and missions experience. Happens over the summer. It's like a greenhouse for your faith. You'll spend a week in New York City doing ministry among Muslims and Hikes and Hindus. You'll spend five weeks here in Charlottesville, and you'll spend two weeks overseas with one of our missionary teams. This will be a game changer for your faith. Hear me right now. Listen, you need to consider this. And here's what I know a lot of you are doing right now. I, I know what you're doing. You say, oh, that'd be great, but internship. Oh, that'd be great, but spending money. Oh, that'd be great, but I need to go see my family. 
Stop. Do you believe what we talked about today? Seriously, do you believe what we talked about today? If you believe what we talked about today, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, you don't get to hold your hands like this anymore. You need to open your hands like this. And you need to say, God, this wasn't on my agenda. This isn't in my five-year plan. This might, my parents might not like this. My professor might not like this. But Lord, I'm opening my hands because there are 2.6 billion people around the world who are going to hell unless something changes. I'm not saying God has called every single college student here to go on City Project. But I know God is calling every single college student here who says Jesus is Lord to live like this and not like this. So here's what I want you to do. Today, on your bulletin, if you look on the back, it's a little on the back under notes, there's, it says City Project Interest. And it's got name and your phone number and an email and then your year in school. If you're willing to open your hands and say, God, I want to go wherever you tell me to go and do whatever you tell me to do. I want you to fill your information out on that. And when the offering bucket goes around, just drop it in the bucket. Doing that doesn't commit you to City Project. It's just simply a step. One of our staff will follow up with you and talk about more details. Are you living like this? Would you bow your heads with me? This call to surrender, this call to mission is not just for college students, it's for all of us. So for the next, I just want to give you a minute, 30 seconds here to just, and put your hands out in front of you, open, palmed up, and just say, Lord, what do you want me to do? You can't reach all 2.6 billion people, but you can reach someone. You can testify to the grace of God with your family, with your neighbors. You can go on a trip. So just open your hands. And for the next 30 seconds, just say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that we came, you came so that we could have hope. Would you give us courage to go so that other, others could have hope? Would you give every one of us courage and discernment today to say yes to what you're calling us to do? Would you help us to live with open hands, believing that you are the only way? And we have that good news and we're entrusted to share. Lord, would you give college students faith to live differently? be different than their classmates, different than how their parents think they should live, but instead of saying, I'm living my life with the end in mind. I want to stand before God Almighty and say, I used my life well for the kingdom. How would you make that true of every single one of us? Lord, you are worthy, you are high and exalted. Thank you for your love, thank you for your grace. I pray all this in your son's name.